And why are you pro-choice? Well, God created man to have choice. And I say man, of course, man and women, to have choice. He gave us a free will because he loves us. That's how much he loves us. He gave us the ability to have choices. Now, there are good choices and there are bad choices. There are right choices and there are wrong choices. But I'm very pro-choice because that's the way God created me and it's the way God created you. Okay? So let's go to this topic of abortion. On this slide, you can see that in China, there's about 23 million abortions per year. Um, in United, just if you want numbers, I'm not real big on statistics, but in the United States, there's still about 1 million a year in the United States. Of course, there's much more worldwide, uh, but in the United States, since we started Roe v. Wade in 1973, there's been probably you know, 100 million abortions, um, something like that. So we've, we've lost generations. We've lost generations of people. They say the entire West Coast, that amount of population has been wiped out by abortion just in the United States. Um, now, this is interesting. It's the leading cause of death, both for the Hispanics and for the African Americans. I cannot think of a single issue that is more racist and more anti-feminist than abortion. And it's easy to make that argument. So if you want to put a little bullet point in your brain, if you take this statistics, so that it's double, compared to Caucasians, it's double for Hispanics and African Americans. We are killing, I'll use that term, killing more of those races than others. It is a very racist issue. It is also very anti-feminist because of gender selection. Now, of course, it's kind of under the carpet or under the rug here in the United States, but in China, for example, it's very popular because particularly the, their policy was only, you can only have one child and the dads want a male. So you, they do a, a, a amniocentesis, find out if it's a female or male, and they kill the females. There are literally communities in some eastern countries, um, I was reading about a community of about three, uh, where there was 300 births last year, and it was 100% male. Okay? So it is very anti-feminism. It's very uh, racial. Um, so here's, here's my question for you. Are you surprised or are you concerned about the hostility that exists towards those that are pro-life? So that's an open question. Are you surprised or are you concerned? You can answer it either way of the hostility to sh that are those that are pro-life. Anybody want to answer? Not at all surprised, Not at all surprised. okay? Our, there's, many, there's many things that fall in that category that we probably should not be surprised about. Uh, correct. So, and, and I'm not terribly surprised um, um, either. Let me just read a couple of other verses. Here's from 1 Timothy 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, or latter times, however you want to say that, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Um, and even Christ speaks about those that are persecuted. We're, we're going to be challenged when we speak on issues. We should not be surprised by that, that uphold 
godly virtues. So uh, it, um, it's true. It's a reality. Um, now, let's, uh, let's, oh, I got the clicker here. So I'm going to switch topics, sexuality. Now, this is a big, broad topic. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this is a difficult topic. Here's my next question. Are you surprised? Actually, I'm sorry. I mean, let, me share, let me share one more. I'm going to just take a step back. I wanted to share this before we go on to, this, on to sexuality. So this is a uh, flyer that just came out. As many of you know that I also have the privilege of being the medical director for our pregnancy center in Eugene, Faith-Based Christian Pregnancy Center. And so here's the flyer. Crisis pregnancy centers are anti-choice, anti-abortion, faith-based, fake clinics with, and then all the stuff, no oversight, no honesty, no choices, no privacy, no separation. Um, I do take offense to that, and there's a whole second page to it, um, because none of it's true, okay? Uh, we demonstrate unbelievable compassion to the ladies that come in here. The, the reviews that we get... Um, are just overwhelmingly positive because these ladies get loved on, cared for, prayed for if they want to. And, and if they want to have a class, if they want to keep their child a class, how to raise the child, uh, if they need baby food, baby clothes, they need maternity clothes, they get the whole thing. They get loved on. So always positive reviews. So this is interesting. Now, it's also interesting. There was another flyer I didn't bring that was a local flyer. The, the Students for Choice at University of Oregon had posted a flyer literally all over the city and all over the campus against ours, it's called Dove Medical, that's our center, saying that the medical director's fake, he's false, blah, 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 blah. There's about, on this one handout, about 12 lies about me and other people in our center. And the it, was, it was illegal, so the police, we actually found out from the police, the police brought one of these flyers, says this is all over town. Said we're gonna try to take it down. So we thank the police, thank you. So I called, I emailed, I got the email of the president for Students' Choice University of Oregon, and said let's have lunch, I wanna know I really just want to listen, and uh, I want to hear your concerns about our, our center. Of course, I emailed her a couple times, no response. And same thing, I went to a school board meeting where just recently this happened in March. There's a lot of hostility, and one of the school board members for our city had spoken vehemently against our pregnancy center because we have an abstinence-based education program in the schools, all right? It is a secular program. It has to be because it's in the public schools, but it's from our center. So one of them, one of the school board members just vehemently spoke against us. So again, I went after, I, of course, I go to these things because I try to get involved in the culture. So I went up to her and said, hey, I really want to hear your concerns. Let's go out to lunch. Here's my business card. Here's my cell phone. Text me, call me. Of course, they don't because they don't want to encourage, but, but we ought to engage the culture is my point. When you have the opportunity, I would encourage you to engage the culture. Now, in regards to sexuality, are you surprised that Christians either fall away from faith or agree with the culture in regards to a lot of these issues? And we'll touch on some of these issues. Are you surprised on that? Now, for Christians or not? Anybody? Yes? No? No? You're not surprised? So here is, let me just, um, this is an interesting one. So this is a guy named Harris, John Harris. He wrote the book. This is kind of dating me, too. Um, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Christian author. Um, great book. Well, um, 
He has changed. Okay? This is a quote from him. I have, under, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have, that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. I regret standing against marriage equality, you know what that means, and not for affirming you and your place in the church and for any ways that my writing and speaking contributed to a culture of exclusion and bigotry. Now, that's interesting from a guy who wrote a Christian book. So question is prize, but you know, he obviously does have a little different opinion of what it means to be Christian. And I would make the point that stand, standing against marriage equality, in other words, standing for what God designed to marriage, is not necessarily excluding others, Okay. So I would, he, makes, he groups something together here that's just not true. We can stand for God's design of marriage, yet include others in love and compassion and in teaching. Now it's up to the Holy Spirit to work in their lives whether they're going to believe what the true word of God is. So I hope I'm making, making uh, sense there. Um, there is a, uh, I have students that live in my house just because we have the extra rooms, and I have one student uh, that lives with me. He goes to a small church in Eugene, kind of a very, new, strong Christian church teaches the word of God, and they didn't have a place, so they rented from a mainline denominational church to meet Sunday night in their church. And because their statement of faith states that we believe marriage is between a man and a woman, it's in their statement of faith, okay? The church they were renting from kicked them out, okay? Just because of that very statement. So we live in a very strange world. So we should not be surprised at... Um, people walking away from the faith, losing their faith, because those things are going to happen. Um, so I read, here's, here's, my, here's my question for you. How do we as believers, how do we as believers maintain our faith in Christ? That's a big, broad question. How, particularly when it comes to bioethical, moral issues that are in our culture how do we stay rooted and grounded? How do we do it? How do we do it? How do you do it? That's my question. Anybody? Anybody? Speaking the word. Oh, being in the word. Absolutely. Being in the word. Remember, remember I quoted a verse from Acts 17:11 that the Bereans were in the word daily to see if these things were so. So it's not just in the word once a month, but need to be in it daily. Okay, how else? Fellowship with strong believers. Absolutely important. You need to have that kindred spirit, open discussion. I mean, you have me here today. Um, in fact, I would ask that you would pray. I am, I was just talking with Ed. I'm a member, we talked about these other organizations, AMA, um, American Psychi Psychiatric Association. So I'm a member of what's called the Christian Medical Dental Association, 19,000 physicians across the United States that uh, is really involved in many issues, including missions and training students and other things. But its desire is that it can be a leader in discussing these issues in churches. So if you want to pray for me or CMDA, that'd be my one request, that other churches like your church would be willing to discuss these issues, okay? Um, so rich fellowship, good teaching um, in the Word, absolutely. So let me just read... Uh, Philippians 4, 7. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we need to guard our, our hearts, and we need to guard our minds in this culture, and we need Christ to do that for us. So we need to know Christ. We need to fellowship with other believers. We need to be in his word. And he promises he'll guard it, but we have to do our part. He does promise that. Um, So how should a physician, because we, physicians deal with sexual issues all the time, by the way, but my question is, how should physicians view the purpose of sex? Well, I put some on there, pleasure, family, helpmate, intimacy. Uh, Of course, family's important. Do you know the United Nations came out with a statement, it's about 10 years ago now, their definition of family is any group of people that love each other. That's their definition of family. It's no wonder our society can get screwed up when we can't even define the family the way God defined the family. Okay, So even the definition of family is getting messed up. And I, as you know, I don't like to get too much involved in politics unless someone asks me, but did you know that when Ronald Reagan was president, before he'd signed any bill that came across his desk in the Oval Office, he had a group of guys that would examine the bill for its effect on the family before he would sign it. Every single bill. Okay? So, anyway, of course, sexuality, there's all kinds of issues. Here's, if you haven't thought of this, because I don't have it up there, in the New Testament, Christ is the head. He is the head of the church. And as as you know, uh, that is compared to the um, husband-wife relationship. Uh, the husband being, and I don't want to go through First Peter and, or, or uh, Ephesians and others where it espouses this, but hopefully you get taught that. But the relationship between the church, us, and Christ, our head, is the same between, supposed to be the same as a wife and a husband, and has all implications. And we as husbands sometimes fail miserably. Well, we, we clearly do fail the way Christ loves us. There's no doubt about that. But I would say that the purpose of sexuality is to reflect the church and Christ as the head. That is, the, that is, in my opinion, probably the main purpose of sexuality. All right? So that's kind of an interesting thought. Uh, why are sexually transmitted diseases on the rise? Which they are. Uh, it's interesting. I have uh, two physician friends that are both believers. One's the head of the county health in uh, Eugene Springfield area, and the other is the head of the uh, University of Oregon Student Health Center, uh, and clearly, and they follow this statistically, and it's interesting, so they follow things more epidemiologically than I do, in other words, what's happening within a culture, um, and of course, they can espouse some different thoughts and ideas than I do, but why are sexually trans- transmitted diseases on the rise? And I don't want to go through all of them, but there's lots of them, but... Any reason why? Answers? Lacks of morals. Yeah. We are, we are, our culture is defining sexuality and sex apart from the way God designed it. Okay? So it just becomes more the physical and not the rest, not the spiritual. Okay? And I mean, that's why. I mean, that's basically it. If you want an answer, that's it. 
Now, here's a tricky question. How should, and I don't want to belabor this too much, uh, how should the physician view homosexuality? Because we actually deal with it. I have homosexual patients all the time in my, in my practice. And I just have a few thoughts, so I don't want to discuss it too much. And you have on your handout the scriptures that define it. I've read lots and lots of Christian books on this. Um, and you have the, the verses from Leviticus. You have Romans chapter 1. Um, I will espouse that in Mark chapter 7, and this is quoting, if you have a red-letter Bible, it's quotes from Christ. It's on your handout, Mark chapter 7, 21 through 23. The Roman culture was... It was horrible, and we think we're in bad situations now. I mean, if you read the media, and, 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 we, and we are in a bad situation now in regards to falling values and morals, and, and uh, when it comes to sexuality and the LGBT, I don't even know all the initials and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. But Rome was, some will say Rome was worse, all right? I had a little conversation here last week. Did you know how the, one of the ways the church grew rapidly uh, initially in the first century is there was gender selection also at the time of, of the disciples, you know, after Christ passed away, where because abortion was not readily available, although it was available, we know that, but infanticide was quite available, and they would cast away female babies because they wanted male babies, and they'd find them in the dump or whatever. The church would get these babies and raise them. So the church grew through Orphans, and not only orphans, but female orphans. That's documented historically. That's how the church grew immensely initially in the first century, is through orphans. No wonder Christ speaks of us caring for the orphans and the widows, but through orphans and even female orphans. Um, but here's, here's a couple takeaways. Um, and we can discuss this more, but I want to be brief. There's a, there's a difference between thought and action, desires, and behavior. And that's true for all of us, okay? We all have temptations in how we act on that, all right? Um, so when we talk about homosexuality, if you're interacting with the person, there's a difference between that their, their desires, their temptations are, and how they behave, okay? Um, so we need to be sensitive to that issue. So, if, so I don't, I'm speaking personally now. I don't think there is anything sinful about being homosexual if that's the way your brain is wired. Now, I don't understand it very well. I will give you that. But then I think you're called to celibacy, okay? That's how I would word it. But, but at the same time, we as the church need to reach out with compassion and love towards these people uh, and listen to them, but encourage them to be in the Scripture and let the Holy Spirit work on their lives. Now, I'm going to get a little personal here. I have three children. Um, my youngest, my daughter, loves the Lord. She's in all kinds of ministry. She does get a little wrapped up in some of these issues a little differently than I do, but, uh, and it's fun because she loves the Lord, so I, I love her. I have another son who really struggles in the faith. I would say he's a Christian. He's accepted Christ, but he really struggles with a lot of issues uh, and knowing God and is the church teaching the right things and this kind of stuff? And then I have another who's walked away from the faith, and he just told me flat out he's walked away from his faith. So I always ask, which of these three children do I love the best? The answer is I love all three equally, correct? Right? You guys that have children, I love all three equally. God, the, the homosexual 
that is meeting some Unitarian Universalist church, even though they may not know Christ, God loves that person as much as he loves you. And we need to realize that. So my son that's walked away from this is homosexual, and we've had these discussions. I hope he can remain celibate and be God-honoring, but, you know, it's his life, his decision. But I love him equally. So my prayer is, of course, I, I want him to change. My prayer is for him to know Christ. That is our prayer for these people, for all these people, for them to know Christ. That is my prayer. And that should be all of our prayers for those that are in some kind of difficult, different situation that we are used to, okay? That should be our number one prayer. Uh, purity and modesty. Now, that's changed through time, some of us older generations. Um, of course, that actually it comes into medical practice as well. Um, so what does our culture embrace? It embraces all kinds of things. Um, what is good for the health of our community? Um, these are just questions you ought to ponder and think about. The other question I like to ask people is, do you, do you personally think about what you think about? Okay? In other words, you think about the things that go into your mind. That's what you think about. Okay? It's one reason we want to be in the Scripture daily, right? We talked about that. We want to be in the Scripture daily. But there are things that in our culture that are bombarding us daily. And not that we need to be a monk and put ourselves aside from the culture. We need to be in the culture, but that's why we need the scripture with it, okay? Because the culture is going to influence what we think about, all right? And that even comes down to purity and modesty. So one of my favorite verses, this is actually, you know, we have these life verses, is Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent, if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And I'd argue to you, if you are now being influenced by things in our culture that are not true, that are not honorable, that are not right, that are not pure, that are not of good repute, that are not of excellence, then you need to make a decision of whether you should be involved in those things, if that's influencing what you think about. All right? Um, porno, uh, pornography, that's a, that's a big issue. Uh, the churches need to step out here. I mean, this, it's prevalent in our churches as well as in the secular world. And so I would encourage, and females do, can get caught up in pornography as, as well, but it's mostly guys. So we as church men need to hold each other accountable. That's the best way I can say that. Um, I would say that pornography, now we just had these killings, uh, both in Texas and in Ohio, and uh, you know a lot of tweets going out from everybody, but one of the issues is the violence that's in our, what do you call it, uh, games and whatever thing else that kids watch and play and all that stuff, and it's got to be an influence. There's a lot of influences. I won't go through all the influences. Um, but there's a lot of things in our culture that influence people to act and do the things that they do. Well, I would say pornography is a huge... You know, pornography is one of those things that is also extremely anti-women. It really denigrates women in their role. Um, so we as a church need to do a better job of this. We need to do a better job. Let's go on to infertility, adoption, and reproduction. 
And if you have questions, write them down, and we, I'm going to open this up for some discussions if there's time here. Um, so this is a big, broad subject. Um, so what is the role of surrogacy, artificial insemination, frozen embryos, genetic engineering, adoption? There's a lot of, a lot of issues here. And I don't, I've got a lot of scripture on your handout. Um, and I'll just, I'll just read a, a couple here. Um, let's see, let me read the one from Exodus 23. 2326, um, there shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Of course, this is when uh, the Israelites are now, uh, have fled Egypt. So he's promised no, no uh, uh, spontaneous abortions uh, uh, and no infertility. Uh, and he does that again uh, in some other, other verses. Uh, so God is, in, my point is God is control, and I don't mean to be insensitive to women who have suffered with infertility, because that is a difficult, I, and I have some good friends, and it is difficult, and I don't want to undermine that. I want to go back to last week, too, and if I step on any toes, I, I, that is certainly not my intention. And again, for women that have had an abortion, there is forgiveness, and we love you just as much as saying, um, but but. If you've not sought a right relationship with God and with others in regards to that, I would encourage you to meet with your elders and your pastors. Uh, now, infertility, difficult issue, but there's different ways to approach it. And of course, uh, science uh, provides all kinds of new ways over time. Um, but I just think artificial insemination is wrong. I'll just flat out say it. I just think someone between their their own sperm and their own egg to make the baby, I think it's wrong, all right? Now, frozen embryos is great, but if you're going to plan to use uh, in vitro fertilization, um, you need to plan ahead. I encourage couples to plan ahead, because what, what are you going to do with your frozen embryos? There is a national adoption ag agency now for frozen embryos where you can actually implant the embryo, um, and it's a wonderful organization. Um, of course, then adoption, that's a great, and of course, we are all adopted. We're adopted sons of God, all right? Um, and so adoption's a wonderful option. Now, it's expensive, and that's where, again, the church needs to become behind these couples and be encouraging. Um, but again, I'm, I'm open to questions and things. I, I also don't believe in surrogacy. I think that's wrong. It's, it's, there's a lot of examples that I use in our handouts, uh, including Isaac, Jacob. Of course, 1 Samuel is all about Hannah and giving birth to Samuel, um, and I'll just read one of the scriptures out of, this, out of the Psalms. This is uh, Psalms 127, uh, 3 through 5. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of the warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. All right, so that's infertility. Well, let's go to, uh, and there's the scriptures. Those are all in your handout. Uh, vaccinations. Of course, there's all kinds of issues with vaccinations. Uh, one is, of course, this measles outbreak. It's been actually all over our country. Um, and there, I think there is, again, God has provided us with good science and technology where it can be for the benefit of all of us. Uh, again, 
I leave that to the epidemiologist of what's right and what's wrong as far as certain vaccinations. But if you can save lives by measles vaccination, I think it's worth, worth doing. Um, so that's where I would stand on that. But I do want to touch a little bit on Gardasil. If you all don't know what Gardasil is, Gardasil is a, a vaccination against cervical cancer. Um, but cervical cancer is caused by a papillomavirus, which is a sexually transmitted disease, okay? Um, now, I've done this bioethics class with a very good OB-GYN Christian friend of mine, and she always cringes when I say this, but it's true, <laughs> say that. If you are a virgin, marrying a virgin you married, and you're monogamous through relationship, your incidence of cervical cancel, cancer is zero. Zero. You know, it's funny. If you look at Scripture, all, all these things that God teaches, so, you know, people think of God as just these sets up these rules, these regulations. Everything that he wrote in this word of his, including the Old Testament, is for our benefit. You ever realize that? It's for our benefit. Everything he wrote, okay? Um, and that's the way I like to view some of these issues, okay? So, now, my Christian friends will say Gardasil has a role in the public health because you're going to prevent cervical cancer if, if you know, you're supposed to get vaccinated when you're a teenager, hopefully before you become sexually active, which is getting less and less these days, but a young teenager then. I tell you, I, will have a, I had a conversation with my daughter, okay, and you can approach this however you want. If, if you want your teenagers to get vaccinated, I have no problems. It's a vaccination, so I mean, I don't think there's a problem. But here's my conversation because she, she didn't wear a purity ring, um, but she wants to remain pure until she gets married, all right? Now, uh, hopefully, then she'll meet someone else who's been pure. But then my fellow Christians will say, what if she marries someone that's not pure, all right? Well, then she can get the vaccination before they get married, and it's still effective, okay, in preventing the papillomavirus if, if that's a... hope I'm making sense. Uh, if people understand, if not, we can talk about it more. But... So on an individual basis, I think you need to think through these things that come down the pike with our science and our culture, particularly when it addresses an issue that is culturally relevant, and that includes the Gardasil vaccine. Um, and then we're going to go to genetics a little bit. And Calvin and Hobbes, for you guys that are older, remember my favorite, my favorite cartoon. Um, so here's... Uh, Mom yelling at Calvin, you've been hitting rocks in the house. What on earth would make you do something like that? So mom's screaming at Calvin. His answer is poor genetic material. Well, that was a bad guess because he got, he got grounded. Um, so what is the value and what's the risk of genetic screening, whether fetal adult? Is there a role for cloning? And what, what is the progress of stem cell research? I'll, I'll just uh, go to the last question first. Every benefit that's been, every benefit that has uh, uh, been for chronic diseases, where it be Parkinson's or you can name a bunch of diseases, where we've done stem cell research to help slow or curb the progress, has been from adult stem cells. Okay, not from fetal stem cells. And you probably, you know, the last few years about harvesting, or you know, doing abortions just to harvest the organs to do fetal stem cell research. And there's been a lot of fetal stem cell research. Of course, I'm against it. I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong to kill a baby for any reason. Um, but all the progress, and I just think 
God has his control over this. Every progress has been from adult stem cells. None of it's been from fetal stem cells. And you can read the research. It's out there. It's clear. But, but what is happen, what's happening in medicine now, probably through a lot of different uh, uh, other sciences and such, is we used to make our decisions in the past, and I love studying history of medicine, um, but we've always made it on, based on, on science. In other words, uh, I remember when you know, penicillin came out, kills things, let's use it, whatever. Or doing research, doing studies, what's, what's, is this good, is this not good? We are now falling away. We talked about these different national organizations, particularly the, the American Psychological Association, but even more important, the American Psychiatric Association. We're falling away from research, what's good science, to what our culture espouses, all right? And that's what we, we need to be wise. We need to understand that. If you really go by good science, I am a firm believer, that, well, God created everything. God created truth. But anything that comes out of science, if it's good science, is, is not going to contradict this. It's going gonna, it's gonna to correlate with this. But unfortunately, we're now living in a culture where even large groups of organizations are making decisions based on cultural issues and not reality and not science. I hope that makes sense. But that's true for a lot of these. Uh, is there a role for cloning? Well, just last year, someone in Japan cloned a human child. There have been cloning for sheep and other animals. Well, I tell you, we're going down a slippery slope with that, in my opinion. Uh, there is a value in genetic screening, but if it's for the purpose of abortion, it's wrong. We talked about Iceland. There's no Downs kid in Iceland because they do genetic screening. If they have Downs, they get killed in the womb. All right? But there is a role for genetic screening. There's a lot of roles. I just had a friend whose uh, grandchild died just shortly after birth because they did genetic screening and diagnosed it with a, uh, with a trisome. And, you know, they had three chromosomes on one limb. Um, and, no, that's a very bad genetic makeup. But the reason is then there's a known risk for future pregnancies. All right? So then there's, it takes a lot of counseling. Do you want to really try to get pregnant again or do you want to adopt and whatever? So... Um, there is definitely a role for genetic screening, um, and then it goes along with counseling. Uh, so I'm hoping I'm making sense there again. Now we're going to kind of get into more uh, other matters. Materialistic, where only matter matters, not the soul, mind, and conscience, and the spirit. We were just talking about that just a few minutes ago, that God, you know, there's people in our, in our culture, I mentioned this last week, on your, on your book of reference, there's all kinds of, of uh, books there. One is Nancy Piercy's book, um, Love Thy Body, that we now in our culture have put the body, the materialistic part of me, separate from the soul, the mind, and the spirit. But what did Christ say? To love your Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, spirit. So we're, you literally can't separate the body of me from the rest of me. We try, and that's what our culture tries to do, but you can't, all right? But unfortunately, we're espousing that only matter matters, which is just wrong. Now, why would I put evolution and talk of bioethical issues? And uh, now, when we come down to evolution, uh, you know, there's the macro versus micro discussion, and I don't want to get too much in that. Micro is changes within a species, macro is a changing of species. Um, 
and I do believe there's some adaptation. I, I get all that. Um, now, if you, if you took out the word DNA in that and you put this sentence assembled itself, it would be impossible, right? That sentence can't assemble itself. So to actually believe what evolution has taught, that we came from a single-cell organism and then became something else, a fish, an ape, or whatever, you know, I think it's crazy, but a lot of people believe it. Now, here's my question. I want you to think about this. Why do people that are, and I'm going to talk about people that are really adamant about evolution, not just the average person, but people that are really adamant that espouse it. Why do they believe it? Why do they believe it? Anybody? Yeah. I think it's absolutely true. You hear the answer. They don't want to recognize God in the equation, particularly creation. I think that's absolutely true, particularly when I've gotten dialogues with other people. Um, one of the books that I have in the reference, I think he's on there, Jeff Simmons, he's an internal medicine doctor in Eugene, but he wrote a book that became a bestseller. But it's what Darwin didn't know. Um, and it's just about this design, particularly of our physical body, how intricate it is. Um, and it's just almost impossible to believe scientifically that we could evolve. But the reason that people won't want to believe it, people that are adamant about it, is they don't want to admit that they were created and that they are responsible to a creator. I think it's just absolutely true. And if you get in a deep conversation, you'll, that will come out if you have a conversation with them. And a little bit on Jeff Simmons' book, and he goes through all different kind of organisms, or, um, organ systems, including the musculoskeletal system and things, and what God did to design it. And, but if you think about it, and we're, we're going to go back to sexuality, for there to be man and women, we're going back to Genesis, all right, first couple of chapters, be man and women, for them to evolve separately and to have sexual union, it's impossible. <laughs> it's just flat out impossible. And he espouses that in his book. It's kind of interesting. Um, Poverty. Poverty is a huge issue for physicians. Um, and again, you have quite a few scriptures on, on there. Um, I will read this one from Job. Um, and this is uh, Job uh, 29, 12 and 13. But I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. And then uh, 3025, have I not wept with the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? So that's Job. That's his personality. Again, he was, well, you know the whole story. I don't know the whole story. He was blessed and things taken away. He's blessed again. But he really had a heart and compassion. And I think all of us, particularly the medical community, and sometimes that's difficult. Um, I do rely on different organizations. I know down at the Eugene Mission, I'm not sure what you guys have here, but the Eugene Mission down there is just led by a wonderful woman of God, just loves the Lord, and she just really wants to demonstrate compassion, and, but also bring you know, Christ in a very real way into these people's lives. Um, but there are the vulnerable, there are the oppressed. I see them in my office very frequently. Of course, fortunately, even though, I'm in a, even though I have a few Christian partners, but I'm in a group with a lot of people who aren't believers, but we have clearly have a policy of how to care for those that can't afford it. And uh, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that, that I can provide free care for some. Um, and uh, you can read through those verse course. Matthew 25, Christ talks about the stranger, the naked, the hungry, the thirsty, uh, those in prison. 
um, etc. And said, and uh, Christ is saying, unless you care for those, I mean, you don't love me. You don't care for me. All right. So we are commanded to do that. That's Matthew uh, 25. So that's a reality for all medical healthcare professionals, and it's both locally and abroad. Um, so there's some big questions, and I don't have the answer to some of these. But how can we improve healthcare access for the poor? That's an ongoing debate, and I think we need to uh, continue to have that discussion, both with secular organization and churches as well. And then the question is, is the answer government, private, or the church? That's an interesting question. Um, I think the government should have some role in this, but I think we as the church, we need to figure out who the orphans are, who the widows are, who the poor are, who the homeless are, uh, who the mentally ill are, and we need to figure out who we can support to actually care for them in a very real way. Um, so I think the answer to a lot of these questions is the church. Do we rely some on the government? Yes. Do we rely some on private individuals? Yes. Do we rely some on secular organizations? Yes. But we as the church, God has called us, he's clearly called us through scripture of how to care for these people. And that's the other thing you can pray for your physicians about. So what is a physician's role in caring for the widows and orphans? Um, we do need to care for them. Um, my whole Bible study is fun. I wish I could stay for worship. I enjoyed your worship last week, and I wish I could stay, but my Bible study, we do an annual thing where we get to love on uh, physical, physical and mentally handicapped children, disabled children. We have a whole party for them. That's this afternoon, um, and it's going to be fun, and it requires a lot of one-one. Some are, some are severely disabled. They've been adopted from overseas orph orphanages where they're severely disabled, and uh, these parents do a wonderful job, and we just get to come alongside them. So I have that this afternoon to look forward to. Um, what is the physician's role in caring for aliens and immigrants? Again, I don't know where you stand on this political spectrum, but we as believers are called to care for them irregardless of what the government's going to do. All right? Um, I just had a uh, pediatrician from Eugene Friend who just flew down to the border just kind of do some inspections along. I think she was called by the State Department to go and uh, just to see that if we were caring for them adequately, and she had some recommendations, this is what we need to do, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a role. Um, we, we are aliens currently. You know, we are called that in Scripture because our home is in heaven. We are aliens here. Um, so we need to do a good job of caring those that are alien in our land here uh, in Salem, Dallas, Eugene, um, and uh, I will certainly see them uh, in my office. Okay, right of conscience, what is that? Well, do you want your physician to act or make a decision with certain values, morals, and ethics? I think that's a pretty simple question. Is that, that's a rhetorical question. It's fun. If you ever study Paul's epistles and such, the, the, I mean, the letters that Paul wrote, he asked a lot of rhetorical questions. So I don't know if you observe that when you study the Scripture particularly when, he's, when he writes to the Corinthians, he asks a rhetorical question, rhetorical question. In other words, he, he knows they know the answer, but he's asked the question so they think about the answer. All right? So that's a very rhetorical question. Do you want your physician to act and make decisions for certain values, morals, and ethics? Well, of course you do. Um, now, here's the question. Who do you want to decide what those values, morals, and ethics are? 
Okay, so that's the trickier question. You want it the organization, you want it the American Medical Association deciding for them? Do you want um, someone else deciding for them? Do you want the individual to be able to make their own value ethical uh, um, uh, statements and, and act accordingly? And I hope it's the latter, but we're losing that in our culture. It's already lost in some cultures. And I have said before, the key to the doctor-patient relationship is trust. Would you choose a physician you cannot trust? All right. I, another rhetorical question. All right. Um, would you choose a physician who cannot practice according to his or his, his or her values? Okay, and that is happening. All right, so I'd ask you to, well, we'll go through a couple things. Uh, for example, in this transgendered issue now, and this is actually more of reality in Canada, but it's coming to the United States, if you are a general surgeon and you do mastectomies for breast cancer, you may be soon required, in fact, there's been some pills, bills proposed in different communities around the United States, that you'll be required to do that for a female who wants to be transgendered to keep your license. How's that for a thought? How's that for a thought? Um, it's kind of scary. Um, you know, physician-assisted suicide we touched on last week. There, there are people that want to make physicians as a vending machine. Okay, you push that button, that's what I want, that's what I get, all right? But we need physicians, and as I'm kind of espousing my own profession here, uh, to be able to practice according to their values and ethics and morals. You know, in, in uh, California, it is against state law to do conversion therapy. If you know what that means, it means if someone is struggling with a sexual issue, another say that they have homosexual tendencies, you cannot counsel them about heterosexual even though they may have the desire to change. It's against the law. It's against the law. Um, and, you know, of course, we read about the bakers and the florists and others, but it's very, re it's very real in the uh, healthcare practice. So what can you do? One is I would encourage you to know your physician. Um, and ladies, I would encourage you to know your OB-GYN physician. Now, times have changed because now most abortions are done other way sites, but if your physician, any way, any shape, any form, participates in abortions, I would encourage you either... Maintain that relationship so you can be an influence and share the gospel in that position. I had uh, a lady in my Bible study who uh, does missions all over the world, loves the Lord. She had to have a procedure done at my hospital. And she was, and it wasn't me, it was a different, different specialty. But uh, she was just witnessing to the anesthesiologist. I said, well, who's the anesthesiologist? And of course, I know all the anesthesiologists. And she was just there getting ready to go to sleep and just sharing the gospel with the anesthesiologist. I said, I hope that bears fruit in that guy. <laughs> but uh, so know your, know your physician. And, and the other option is then go to someone who is pro-life, okay? So those are, I think those are your two choices, but you ought to think about it. You ought to think about it. You ought to be praying for your physician, all right? We ought to be praying for you as a patient. And then support locally. There's a lot of ways you can support. Support your pregnancy resource center. I would appreciate that because that's a passion of mine. Uh, pray for your school board. As I told you, this uh, school board, there's some, a lot of animosity on ours, and they should be involved in conversation. Um, let me read uh, Galatians 6, 9. And let us not 
lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. And I think of the people that grow weary. I think of my psychiatrist friend who lost his job as the head of the department. I thought, think about the uh, Kate Baker in Colorado who's been to the Supreme Court and continues to get harassed. And there's others that trying to practice growing the right of consciousness. Um, and I'm fortunately in a specialty where I don't get bombarded with a lot of issues, but people know that I speak out on issues, so I do get people that don't like things that I say. But we should not, all of us should not lose heart. All of us should not grow weary by, again, supporting, we already talked about being in the scripture, but supporting e each other, fellowship, encouraging one another um, uh, throughout all these issues. So be bold in sharing the gospel. I would encourage you to be bold in sharing the gospel, not trying to win cultural acceptance, but certainly out of love for the other. All right? And one of my caveats is, even though we're in a very dark world, and it seems to be getting darker, that's kind of my appearance, but light is brightest in darkness. All right? And we need to believe that. We need to believe that. Um, now, you guys will probably get this, but when I do this, young people, it's interesting, so I want you in your mind here, just a second, I want you to define freedom, all right? Define freedom in your mind. I'm not going to ask for any volunteer answers, but I want you to think about it. If someone's asking, how would you define freedom? I want you to think about what your answer would be, all right? All right, now that you have that answer in your mind, I want you to answer the question, is your definition of freedom culturally dependent? In other words, living here where you live versus another country, another state, in poverty, whatever, is your definition culturally dependent? I hope your answer is no. Now, again, when you ask young people, particularly college kids, what the definition of freedom, you get all kinds of different answers. Um, but let's just go to Galatians 5.13. And by the way, in your handout is a whole set of scriptures about freedom. Um, but 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. That is our freedom. Our freedom is to share Christ, is to love one another. That is our freedom. Um, and it's a, it's a very unique freedom. The things that the scripture teaches us and tells us can be completely opposite of what the world teaches us. And we need to be very well aware of that. Um, so the next question, is freedom the same as rights? From what I just read you, it's not. So, um, so did you know that in the New Testament, we don't have rights? All right? You ever think about that? Now, I love living in America. I love being a United States citizen. Um, and we do have this... Bill of Rights, we do have rights, which I think are good. I think they're good things. I think they're written by good people. Um, but, but when we are called to freedom in Christ, the only thing that well, I would equate with the right, and I have Romans 8 in there in your list of scriptures, we are joint heirs with Christ. What a privilege. What a privilege. I would consider a privilege more than a right. We are joint heirs with Christ, but we were never promised any of these rights. So our right is to sacrifice for our king, not to think of ourselves, but to think of him and our freedom to share his love. That's our freedom. It's completely contradictory to the world. 
So what is greater? Um, or would I answer that question? What is greater, rights or truth? In our current culture, I would say that rights is a greater, but I think truth for us as believers should be greater. Okay, and that comes down to all these bioethical issues, that truth, truth should be greater than rights, but our culture thinks the opposite. Again, complete opposite on this spectrum. Um, other questions? Why did Jesus heal? Now, I'm going to open that up for answers. I've got to go quick here. Why did Jesus heal? There's lots of answers, by the way, to this question, but anybody, why did he heal? Compassion. Compassion. To bring God glory. Connection. Absolutely, because then he can share more once he healed them. You know, which is the guy that was crippled, okay, and which is more important, to stand up and walk or to say that your sins are forgiven. So there's that connection. What else? God's power, absolutely. And to demonstrate that who he was, right? Yeah. But remember, he said that even I can do more signs and wonders and people still won't believe, even though he did some amazing things. All right? Also to fulfill Old Testament scripture. All right? So to fulfill prophecy. And there's more. Uh, I, that's one of my favorite verses, too, one of my life verses. Why did, you know, he saw the crowd and he just had compassion. He just oozed compassion. All right? What an example for us. Um, and I, I pray that, and, and I fall so short of that sometimes, and I can lose my temper, and I cannot have compassion in someone who makes bad lifestyle choices, and they come into my office with having bad, bad lifestyle choices. But I pray every day, God, give me your compassion for people the way you had compassion. He just oozed it, just oozed it. Um, and that should be an example for all of us. Um, so there are consequences for the individual, for society, and for the church um, in regards to uh, a lot of these issues. And I said before, bioethical issues can be divisive. I said truth is divisive, but truth saves. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I like to, I like to put in there scalpel, because that's what I use. And piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit for of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Um, you know, truth is truth. You know, I had a we 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 do this uh, with U of O students. I have a little conference. I have a whole panel, and I had one of the students come who didn't know Christ, but he heard the truth through all this discussion, and he accepted Christ that evening. So, just kind of you know, truth is truth. Our role is to be obedient to God and share the truth. All right. God is sovereign. We are called to be obedient. We're called to speak the truth, to live the truth, but also to rejoice in forgiveness when we fail. All right? Truth is worth fighting for, and truth is worth dying for. Um, this is a, a little quote out of Albert Moeller's book, which is also on your references. In the end, the church will either declare the truth of God's word, or it will find a way to run away from it. And there's church, your churches is the first. There's other churches that are the latter. It ultimately comes down to trust. Do we trust the Bible to tell us truthfully what God desires and commands about our sexuality? And then I would go on about all these other issues. So do we trust God's, God's word? Um, uh, some more scriptures you can read through that. We should not think it's strange when uh, uh, we are thought of as fools because of things that we espouse. And uh, my question is, what are these that are taught in your church? Well, they're taught in your church because I'm here. But in your school, what are they taught at home? 
A um, couple of quotes, don't fear failure, fear succeeding at something that does not matter. And then joy is not self-actualization, but self-expenditure. And then you have a whole bunch of references. And then the last uh, quote, remember, remember that we fail. Remember that the church fails. And I think the church has failed in a number of these issues in the past. And we need, as a church body, to ask forgiveness if we've offended others. Don't, don't walk away from the truth, but, but apologize if we've been offensive. And we have been as the church. I'm not saying your church, the church, on certain issues. But God forgives. And the last quote from Albert Moeller, and I'll close with that, and you have a whole lot of other references you can read through, is moralism is one of the greatest enemies of the gospel. So as I speak on a lot of these issues, I really believe that. We can be self-righteous because I'm a monogamous, almost a monogamous heterosexual male that, that hates abortion, that uh, blah, 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 down the road. Okay, so I can be the self-righteous person. That is, moralism is just as bad an enemy of the gospel of Christ as all these other issues. So if, if, if you hear that from me, that we need to be these moral, godly, good people, that comes from Christ, all right? I'm just trying to espouse to you a food for thought that's in our culture that you can think about, you can pray about, you can fellowship with, read the word, study the scripture. But we're all sinners, all of us. That's what I want to close with. Questions on any of that? Yeah, the question is, attending a same-sex wedding. Difficult question. If you get, I'm trying to remember the books. I've read so many books. I think it's in Albert Muller's book. He asked that. He has a whole list of like 50 questions at the end with brief answers, and that's in that book, which you can look at. Um, and my wife and I, of course, debate this. What if my son decided to get married? I personally, I, I, haven't, I have not answered the question completely for myself yet. I do not think I would go to the wedding. Okay, I do not think I would go. The other issue is, what if he brought a guy home? I don't see. We have we have kids that live in our house, and they know that they cannot have a boyfriend or girlfriend in their room. They can be downstairs with us or whatever, but they cannot have a boyfriend or girlfriend. It's just the way our house is. Okay, if you're married, it's different. We've had married couples in a difficult life situation come sit in. They can get their own bedroom. Okay, but that's why my house runs. Other houses were run differently, and I'm not going to hold anything against them. That's a very difficult question of whether to attend the same-sex wedding. I will t tell you, I had a friend who just went to one just a little further north of here a month or two ago. And in the wedding, the pastor, if you want to call it a pastor, instead, instead of until death do us part, it was until love do us part. Wow. That would, who's married here? Okay. Have there been a time when you really didn't love your spouse? That marriage probably would end really quickly. Sorry for saying that, but yeah, good, great question. I don't have all the answers, but other questions. Yeah, it's, and she's talking about Syria because there's a lot of refugees in Syria with the civil war that's been going the last 10 years, and you have a lot of refugees, and so the church, the actual true Christian church that takes these refugees and just grows by leaps and bounds. And I tell you, it's true. I had the privilege, I go to Eastern Europe every year, privilege going in Serbia, a refugee camp for Iranian refugees. Um, and, uh, I, and it's interesting. They, and, and that church is just growing by leaps and bounds because of the love that, and the compassion that's demonstrating. Because these Iranian refugees cannot go anywhere else so Serbia opened their doors to them for some reason. 
you know, secular country. And it was interesting, I had just gotten a conversation through a translator with one of the, the men there, and he had his wife and little baby that they fled. And I said, but you had to flee your father, too. He goes, yeah, my father, once I came to Christ, he threatened to kill me. And as you know, Christ tells us in the scripture, unless, unless you hate your mother or your father and your brother and sister, you cannot be a follower of mine. That's a bold statement by Christ that I still have a hard time comprehending. I'm not sure I fully comprehend it, but he had to leave his father who he loves and follow Christ. And so, yeah, these churches that open up to refuge, it's happening at our southern border. It happens in Syria. These churches that open their homes and their families to the refugees, um, boy, that church grows. That church really grows and thrives. Great question. So the question regards to medical miracles that go beyond science, and of course, when I say science correlates with the Bible, I truly believe that, but, but the Bible is beyond science. In other words, there's more to God and his revelation that's more than just science. I mean, there's things we'll never understand about faith and love and compassion. Um, we will never fully comprehend it here in this life that we're here. And so God can do miraculous things. I truly believe God can do miraculous things, and I've, and I've known people who've been cured miraculously. Um, outside of science, outside of medicine. Why God chooses to do that, who he chooses, when he chooses it, I have no idea. Absolutely idea. Does it happen? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's interesting. Prayer is a big factor, and I'm not one of these to espouse, well, you need to have enough faith when you pray, and then God will make it happen. I think there's a false teaching with that in some churches. But prayer is, is crucial. There's a book called The Faith Factor. I'm trying to think of the authors coming to my mind, where they've done good science now, research behind prayer for patients. This had, they had several issues. They did a really good scientific paper. Patients that were in ICU were prayed for and patients that were not prayed for. And the outcomes were substantially, statistically, significantly better for those that were prayed for. There is a power in prayer that you can actually prove scientifically. But yeah, miracles happen. I don't know how and when, why. I saw one more hand. And then probably last question, Ed. Yeah, so the question is, let's stop right there, but the question is, choosing a physician to care for a specific issue, a health issue that you may have, and do you want to choose someone that is, quote, a believer or someone that's an expertise, which may not be the same, may be the same, um, and it comes down to a very individual decision. My point that I was trying to make is if you're going to have an ongoing relationship with a physician, in other words, for general care, and again, the, the, the clearest one would be a woman with her OB-GYN care, because OB-GYNs are the ones that tend to do abortions. That's kind of clear if you have an ongoing relationship. But if you have some strange tertiary problem that reads a very highly skilled, trained specialist, you ought to go to the best, if you can, irregardless of their faith, because they've been trained to do what they do. I, yeah, I believe that. And I have my niche in the orthopedic field, field of which I'm very good at and some things I'm not very good at. And so certain patients come to me with this and said, I need to refer you to so-and-so. But no, I'm the one that needs to take care of this because this is what I do and this is what I'm good at. Now, again, I do want to pursue excellence because I know God wants me to pursue excellence. But I know other physicians who aren't believers that do practice excellence. And I have no problem getting treatment by them. So my comment was more about an ongoing relationship, particularly when a very specific bioethical issue arises, okay? But we ought to pray for physicians. I feel bad for these physicians in their specialty that are not going to have to practice against their conscience if they want to continue to practice. That's going to be a huge issue. All right, thank you very much.